0: Well, good evening, everyone. Turn with me in your Bibles to Titus, chapter 1. Oh, can you get out? Can you get through that door? <laughs> All right. Um, so we're still in chapter 1 of Titus. Um, And last week, we spent our time in verses 5 through 8 in chapter 1 of Paul's letter to Titus, and that section of Scripture gave the qualifications for elders in the church, which we heard from Paul that that is why he left Titus in Crete, so that uh, he could put such elders into place in all the churches. And the qualifications given by Paul are, as we saw, the same as those uh, with Um, a couple of slight differences, not contradictions, but additions, um, in Timothy, 1 Timothy 3. And I'll remind you that these qualifications are consistent between, really consistent between what Paul says to Timothy and what Paul says to Titus. And these are universal qualifications for elders, pastors in the church uh, for all time, not just for the first century church. Um, So, then, then the question is why? Why, why, are these, why are there these requirements? Why can't we just have just anyone who's interested do the job? Right, well, because of the nature of the job. Um, remember the passage we looked at in Hebrews uh, last week, which says, for uh, they, referring to elders, are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. This, so this isn't just... Just any regular task or any regular job. Pastors are made overseers by the Holy Spirit uh, to care for the church, in which Paul reminds that was obtained with God's own blood through his Son. It's a serious thing. And we briefly touched on verse 9 last week in Titus 1. Uh, so we'll look at it a bit more and then move on to Paul's main concern with the church in Crete, and the reason why these qualified elders um, need to be holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So let's have a word of prayer, and we'll get started tonight. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this night. Thank you, uh, Lord, for the singing, uh, for the fellowship that we have here as believers. We thank you for your trustworthy word, that you have given, that you have preserved. Lord, no matter how many people have tried to destroy it or rid the world of it, that will never happen. Your word endures, Lord. It does what you send it to do. And we thank you, Lord, for the gospel that has gone forth, the gospel that has impacted the lives of every believer here. We thank you for those that shared it with us. We pray, Lord, you give us boldness to share the gospel with others in our lives. We thank you for what we have been looking at here in Titus. We ask, Lord, that uh, it will encourage us tonight. It will, it will warn us and remind us of our need to be vigilant. Um, and we thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us floundering on our own. And not only do you help us with your indwelling spirit, but you have given us the body of Christ. We're so grateful for that, Lord. Thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's look at, let's read our passage of Scripture out here for tonight. I'm going to start in verse 9 and read to the end of the chapter. If that sounds like a bigger portion of Scripture than I usually get through, that's because it is. So hopefully we'll get through it tonight. (laughs) Starting in verse 9, Titus chapter 1, and this is referring to elders here. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So we see here in verse 9, the last in the list of, oh yeah, go ahead, Uh, ESV. Is that what you have? Okay. (laughs) We can compare Bibles afterwards if you want. (laughs) Um, So verse 9, we have this sort of the end of this list of requirements that's been given. Again, there are are other principles that pastors and, and Christians alike should live by that we find in the Scriptures, but these are of utmost importance for elders. And this last requirement is uh, I believe at the top of the list, though it's mentioned last, everything else—all other requirements—are discovered by a person who is found faithful in his requ- in this requirement that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. And when when a, when a person holds firm to the trustworthy word, we find all the other instructions about being kind, being loving. Um, not being a drunkard, all these things. We can find all those when we hold firm to the trustworthy word. And we see here not only the foundation and anchor of the task of elder, but the reason it must be held firm to, because something important follows this requirement. And notice also that there are really three requirements in that last, in that verse, verse nine. It's not a requirement and two suggestions, And so I would ask, what are the three requirements then that we see for an elder in verse 9? What are the three requirements? This is for anyone to answer, if you can see it. Okay, 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 that's the first one. Okay? Right. So there's three things that the elder must do. And first of all, is holding firm to the, to the Word. And then to give instruction from the Word of God. And also to rebuke anyone who contradicts the Word of God. And so, so giving instruction or exhortation in some translations uh, and rebuking are also requirements for the elder. And those tasks are empowered... And informed by the fact that they have held firm to the word as taught. Why? Because, as Paul says, the word is trustworthy. The word used for holding firm, you know, some of your translations may say something else there besides holding firm, but really it means to cling strongly to something or someone. In this case, to the revealed word of God. Because it alone is trustworthy. And that the the teacher or that the teaching or exhortation to be focused on sound doctrine is clear. It's clear that that is the focus, sound doctrine. There is no other source which, with which the pastor is to teach. Um, the only source of sound doctrine is the Bible. And the word sound comes from a Greek word that has the meaning of to be well or to be in good health. In other words, um, what is sound is what will keep the Christian spiritually healthy. It preserves a person's life. And of course, doctrine refers to teaching or what is taught. So the pastor is to be exhorting or teaching the church in the spiritually life-giving teachings of the Bible. The, the Word of God is life-giving. And then he's able to refute or rebuke those who contradict that teaching. And the literal meaning of the word used there for contradict is to speak against, right? To speak against them. The person is to be rebuked, and there's a severity to this. There's some shame attached with the person's departure from soundness. The fact that they departed from sound doctrine, there's shame attached with that. And and what they're doing is speaking against the Word of God. And not in the sense maybe of verbalizing that the Word of God is untrue. You know, They may not go around saying the Bible's untrue, the Bible's untrue. But teaching what is false is the same thing as saying God's Word is untrue. I, I depart from the Word of God to teach what is false because I don't believe that what the Word of God says is true. And notice that They are not to be, speaking of the false teachers, they're not to be ignored by the elders. This is not to be tolerated, but sharply corrected. Why? Paul says in, in verse 13 there, therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Okay, so this should be evidence enough for us that the qualifications for Elders are indispensable. That that an elder would do what the scriptures say they should do and be what the scriptures say they should be uh, should be very clear. This is not a job for just anyone, and we should not trust just anyone. And this doesn't mean that an elder knows everything. They will also continue to grow and learn as well. But if they're not sound in their teaching um, according to the word of God to begin with, then they're not to be elders. Why is it a bad idea for the church to sit under the teaching of someone who's not qualified? Well, for the same reason, it's a dumb idea to send a social worker to respond to cases of domestic violence. Okay, they, they may have good intentions. They may be able to be compassionate. They may be able to offer suggestions for making um, better choices in life. But they are not prepared to deal with violence. Are they're not trained and equipped to protect themselves, let alone someone else, from a violent attacker. They'll be vulnerable and therefore cause other people to be vulnerable to the wicked. And we can look around, we can look at the internet, we can see the, all kinds of examples of the crazy, unqualified people leading ch- churches into heresy and apostasy. But boy, can they entertain people, Right? And they, they sure do make people feel good about themselves, but where is the biblical qualification that says the job of the pastor is to make people feel good about themselves? It, it isn't there. It seems that the church is the only place where this is okay, right? Where, where it's seen as okay and even desirable to have unqualified people leading. What other profession is that okay in besides politics? <laughs> I know that was on someone's mind right away, so I thought I would beat you to it. <laughs> and when a, when a person goes to medical school to learn to be a doctor, they aren't trained by just anyone. Right? Nobody would tolerate learning how to be a doctor from a hospital orderly. Not that the orderly is dumb, but they're not qualified and shouldn't be teaching at medical school. Nobody learns to be a mechanic from the guy behind the counter at the auto parts store right? Who, who's selling them... You know, grease or something. Again, not that he's dumb, but he's not qualified. People don't become hairstylists by asking the person who sells them the shampoo, right? They go to those who are qualified to teach them. That's how it is. I was watching a movie recently. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. It's called Here Comes the Boom, but it's about this high school teacher who uh, needs to raise money for the music program at school, because the music program is being cut, and the music uh, teacher is going to be laid off. And so the only way he finds that he can raise enough money is to enter cage fighting. And so he's in the basement. The, the music teacher is holding a mattress pad, and he's kicking the mattress pad and getting frustrated because there's two days before the fight, and he's not going to be ready for it, and doesn't know how he's going to learn how to do these things. And the music teacher tells him, well, he has an idea. You know, you're going to learn the ancient art of intimidation. Okay, and and so the teacher replies to him, have you ever actually been in a fight? (laughs) He says, well, no, not not with a boy anyway, Uh, but I know that this will work, he says. And so the other teacher says, so based on your limited experience fighting girls, how is this going to (laughs) work, right? And so the whole point is he proceeds to find someone that actually can train him. He's not going to learn from a person who's never been in a fight, who doesn't know anything about it. He doesn't want somebody unqualified to teach him how to do this serious thing. And so we see this really throughout society. This is, this is a kind of a universal principle that if you want to be trained in something, you go to those who, who can teach you, those who know, those who are qualified. But it seems like the church uh, is sometimes okay with the opposite. Uh, and let's be honest, we wouldn't want to go to a doctor whose qualifications were having lunch with the orderly and talking about, you know, remedies for people's illnesses, right? Uh, You wouldn't take your car to be fixed by the guy who learned a couple things from the guy at the auto parts store. And I'm pretty sure, ladies, you would agree that you wouldn't go to a person calling themselves a hairstylist because the person that sold them the shampoo told them how to use scissors, right? You want your hair to be done right. We don't do that. The whole world knows that some people are qualified to do things and others are not. No one says they want to go, I want to go to the least qualified person to, to take care of this problem for me, right? Nobody does that. If we go, go to the mechanic, we want the one who's trained and knows how to recognize the problem and fix it. We get on the Internet. We Google. We find who's got the most reviews and the best reviews. We want to go to the best. Sometimes we settle for a little less because it's cheaper. <laughs> but you get the point. People become qualified in these areas because they're taught the disciplines of their craft, right? The truths of those areas of life that make things function properly and they stick to it. And it's the same with the Word of God and elders, really. They they must hold firm to the trustworthy Word as taught, not going somewhere else and we should not sit under the teaching of someone who is contradicting the Word of God. Why must Titus... Know all of this and hold to all of this because, as Paul says in the next verse, verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Okay, so he explains what an elder should be and what he must do, and then he gets to the first point of correction for Titus and the elders that he will appoint, and it is the circumcision party. Who are those of the circumcision party? Jews, right? The Judaizers. And there was apparently a very big problem on Crete with Jews professing to be Christians who were not. And he says, there are many. And they are the, the Judaizers, mixing belief systems. Now the problem was not it's not only the Judaizers, because Paul said there were many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. It's just that Paul emphasizes the circumcision party by saying, especially them. So there's more. There's other people, other false teachers teaching other false things. But his point is, especially those of the circumcision party are doing this. So though others are doing the same things and need the same rebuking, Paul's very much focused on the biggest segment of the problem, the Jews. And keep in mind, these are not just These people are not just roaming around the land uh, on the island of Crete for Titus to find. They're in the churches. This is where they're speaking against the word of God. Maybe not the only place, but they're in the churches. He says they're insubordinate. They're empty talkers and they're deceivers. And your translation might say rebellious there for insubordinate. They don't submit themselves to the Word of God, and thus, they they use their own confused ideas to teach falsely, making them empty talkers, and that is people who say a lot of things that have no meaning, no value for a healthy spiritual life, and the first thing that came to my mind, again, here is politicians, right? But they say a lot of stuff. They make a lot of promises, but things never really change, do they? Right? Nothing has really helped. But people will follow them anyway. And they'll keep following them. And it's like we're addicted to promises, and even though they're never kept, we keep believing. And we keep doing that. And these empty talkers, therefore, become deceivers, and they seduce the minds of people. Well, how do these deceivers accomplish this in the church? How is it that a deceiver can deceive within the church? Okay, they're very convincing, very articulate with their words. Sure, sure. Any other thoughts on that? Okay, so they come with a, some supposed new thing, right? The, shi- the shiny object, right? They mix, one of the ways this happens is they mix bits of truth with lies, right? That's the whole point of deception. And, of course, mixing lies with a bit of truth really is just making a whole lie. It's, it's not the truth. They make false promises that appeal to something, what are they usually appealing to? Our feelings? Our, our felt needs, right? Men's desires. And you can see the progression here in what Paul's talking about. They, they don't submit to the word, but teach their own thing. So what they teach is empty and without meaning because it is not what God has said. But people believe them and follow them anyway, making them deceivers, and after talking to the Ephesians about what God has done to build the church up to the fullness of Christ, and talking about maturity, he warns them again not to be like the unbelieving Gentiles. He describes what's going on in their minds and actions. And I think if we turn to Ephesians 4, if you'll look there with me, he gives us a picture of those that he's also describing to, to Titus. Ephesians chapter four, and verses seventeen through nineteen. <clears throat> okay, again, this is this is after he's encouraged them with what God has done to build up the church and equipping believers. In verse seventeen, he says, "Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds; they are darkened in their understanding." Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Okay, we see there that their minds are futile. They're they're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from God. They're greedy to practice every kind of impurity and this is what follows this kind of teaching okay a departure from the word of god leads to this the leaders almost always fall in greed and sexual sin and we see it happening all the time around us today in the so-called church around the country when the leaders are not qualified this follows the greed the sexual sin Paul tells Titus then in Titus 1.11, back in our passage, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. You know, to silence here means to bridle or to stop the mouth, stop them from speaking. Right? Silence doesn't mean you go kill them. Right? That's not what we're talking about. But they must be made to stop talking. must not be allowed to say the things they're saying within the church. They're upsetting whole families. And perhaps they were also going into homes and spreading their falsehoods. And Paul describes this kind of activity to to Timothy, um, identifying them, uh, the false teachers, as those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. That's Second Timothy 3, 6 and 7. And they're somehow making money. Shameful gain. Now this is dirty money by teaching what they, what they should not be teaching. Somehow they're making money doing this. I don't know how they did it back then, but it's still going on today. False teaching is a money-making machine. People are ready and willing to give everything they have to the one making all kinds of promises that they can't keep and that are not biblical. People lose everything still in our day and age, and in particular in third-world countries where people go supposedly bringing the gospel and promise them if they give money they'll get money and that appeals to people's desire appeals to people's greed so they should not be teaching these things whole families are being deceived by them and losing money to them and these men are rebels and liars and paul even quotes one of the Cretans' own prophets about them and probably, it's believed, referring to a Cretan philosopher of sorts named Epimenides uh, from over 600 years before this time, um, who wrote about his own people. And Paul would, he would know about this. Paul is no dummy. Paul is very well-read, very well-educated. And he quotes this person, calling him a, a prophet in Titus 1.12 here. It's like, almost like a little side note here. He says, one of the Cretans... A prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then Paul affirms this testimony about them as true. He says it's true. He agrees with the statement, says it's true of them at the beginning of verse 13. But is that what the false teachers look like or come across as to the people they're deceiving? What do they appear to be? Do they come across as? As these things, do they come across as e- liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons? What do you think? What do they appear to be? I mean, are you going to believe somebody that is that would fit that description if they were standing up in front of you? No, so they must look like something else. Okay, well, they didn't have movie stars back then, but, but now we do. Okay, they're going to look put together. They're going to look, maybe even look and sound like a man of God, right? Good teachers. They'll, be, they'll come across as looking out for the people, as, as really caring about the people. Because nobody's going to follow somebody that looks like that description. We're not going to do that. But when they cloak themselves in Bible words and things like that and and, in what sounds like a person who cares about them and who makes promises that sound like biblical promises, people will follow because they are not holding firm to the trustworthy word. And since Paul says this is true and this is what these false teachers are like, and because they are upsetting whole families, in Titus 1.13, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Okay, not that they're just to be cast aside, but that an effort is made in correction. You see that? That's why he says that they may be. There's a goal here. And he's seeking a, a change in them. And the, the change is that they would be found Instead, to be sound in the faith. So we see that he's not just saying, cast them aside. Now, at some point, you do want to cast them aside and not have anything to do with them, right? But there is an effort here at correction. To, to someone who professes to be a follower of Christ, we want to correct. Uh, the alternative is what they have been doing, what they've been involved with personally, and what they had been teaching others to do, as he says in the next verse, in verse 14, he wants them to be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So that's what they are doing. He doesn't want them to continue doing that. He wants them to be sound in the faith. But he gives us a glimpse here at what they're doing, devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Now, Paul doesn't specify here what the Jewish myths were, but I think we can assume something here. I think we can assume some things based on other biblical passages, and perhaps he's talking about circumcision, right? What, what the, he's dealt with before with the Judaizers, this. Jewish myth that to be a Christian you must follow Christ and be circumcised. And this is of course not the true gospel. I want to look too at 1st Timothy, if you turn there with me, 1st Timothy chapter 1 verses 3 through 7. We well, hear some of the same kind of language here that we're that we're getting in Titus. And Paul warns against those devoted to certain myths and other things. Verses 3 through 7 in 1 Timothy 1, he writes to Timothy, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, uh, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So we see the same warning and charge here not to teach falsely. We see the same deception in that it brings about speculation instead of assurance and empty talk or what we saw there, vain discussion. We see the same motivation and correction, which is love from a pure heart for a change in what they're doing and and a turning back to God. But nonetheless... Christians are to do what Paul also says later in 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, having, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. Okay, irreverence. Irreverence is about, it's really having no regard for God and his holiness. It's what rebels do. To train yourself for godliness is is to hold firm to the trustworthy word and being taught by those who do the same. It's always going to keep coming back to the trustworthy word. That's the anchor. And then there is a verse that is perhaps difficult to understand sometimes, verse 15 in our text, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. I believe this is talking about these false teachers as unbelievers, making the distinction between a believer who is pure in heart, and so what comes out is pure, and the unbeliever who may profess to be a believer but is really defiled on the inside not a believer. And that word pure, um, I'm not good at pronouncing Greek words, katharos, I don't know how close is that, (laughs) (laughs) semi-close. It's it's describing something that's literally free of dirt, right? So it's therefore clean. In other words, it is that which is free from admixture or adulteration. So it is pure. we can see this concept all throughout the Old and New Testaments. It is a constant picture of what is necessary for fellowship with God, but also a constant reminder that it is only God who can truly purify. It is only God who can do that. It is about the heart. Um, I read something from William Barclay that I thought was helpful in this assessment of humanity. He said, it's very seldom indeed that we do even our finest actions from absolutely unmixed motives. If we give generously and liberally to some good cause, it may be that there lingers in the depths of our hearts some contentment in basking in the sunshine of our own self-approval, some pleasure in the praise and thanks and credit which we will receive. If we do some fine thing which demands some sacrifice from us, it may well be that we are not altogether free from the feeling that men will see something heroic in us and that we may regard ourselves as martyrs. Even a preacher at his most sincere is not altogether free from the danger of self-satisfaction in having preached a good sermon. Was it not John Bunyan, who was once told by someone that he had preached well that day and who answered sadly, The devil already told me that as I was coming down from the pulpit steps. We will, as Christians, still have times of impurity, but in ever-decreasing measure, as the Lord sanctifies us, the unbeliever is going the other direction. They are marked by impurity in heart and deed in increasing measure. And look with me, if you will, I want to look at an example in Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 41. This is Jesus speaking. and looking here at an example of this sort of hypocrisy from the Pharisees and what Jesus says about it. In verse 30, 37... While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. So we see there an example. We see that they, that they say one thing and do another. We see that they're about the outside of the cup, not the inside of the cup. They clean up the outside to make a good show, but the inside is full of wickedness. The inside is dead. And in reality, the inside cannot be hidden for long. And Paul indicates to Titus in our last verse that the works of the false teacher betrays who they are. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Well, if someone is detestable and disobedient and unfit for any good work, what are they? What was that? Unbelievers, right? That's describing an unbeliever. They're unfit. Some translations say worthless. And they have not been fitted for good works. Their so-called good works are really only ever filthy rags before God. And the word there actually means they are disqualified or rejected. And in this case, rejected by God. Well, how is a believer fit for any good work? What has changed? How is a believer fit for any good work? Right. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Right? You're, and we are made fit through regeneration, through the new birth. We're given the righteousness of Christ and made pure on the inside, which leads to purity on the outside. And prior to that, they were an unbeliever could not please God. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. So salvation must come by the working of God who has prepared His new creation for good works. And As Paul writes in Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's how a believer is fitted for good works. We're made fit by the righteousness of Christ. And the false teacher, we see here, absolutely professes to know God. Absolutely, though, he does not. Not even a little. No matter how much they may protest that fact when rebu- we when rebu- 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 rebuked, that's a hard word. Paul says what they actually do shows that they deny God. So, we must be looking. We must be watching. It will become evident. By what they do, those things they do, no matter what they say, they can't hide it for long. And we see churches crumbling all around us because of leaders who profess to be believers and leaders and they're not. And maybe weeks, months, maybe years they've been there, but eventually they fall to the same things, greed and sexual immorality. So we have to be vigilant. We got to be looking and watching. And Paul knew this was a big problem on Crete. He knew that Titus needed to handle it by appointing not only by himself being there but by appointing qualified elders. In every church in every town And that's what he wanted them to do to deal with this problem this problem especially of the circumcision party and there's a lot here for Titus to deal with and has been I believe clearly taught to him before by Paul but Paul is reminding him here again um, how the false teachers behave and the next chapter gets into Paul's exhortation that Titus should Continue to be different than them. He's not saying you're doing the same things as them or anything like that. He starts out chapter 2 by saying, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That's not an accusation that he's not. It's an exhortation to continue in that. He gives the positive after the negative in that sense between chapter 1 and chapter 2. And we'll start looking at chapter 2 next time. So let's close in a word of prayer tonight, and then we'll have Uh, a time of discussion and questions. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for this night, and thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray, Father, that we would be found always holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught. I pray, Father, that in all of us, where there may be misunderstandings of your word or or we haven't come fully to understand portions of your word or that you would in, in your perfect timing open our eyes to see it that we would always be willing to cast aside anything we falsely understand to hold firm to what is actually true and I thank you for your patience and your grace towards us in that may we be patient with one another in that Father, help us to be vigilant, help us to be watchful, and not to be deceived by empty talkers. And help us not to be empty talkers, but to remain anchored to your word. And We thank you, Lord, that it is your Holy Spirit that empowers us to do so, that opens our eyes to see it, our ears to hear it, and our ears minds to understand it, we thank you for that. For anything that we rightly understand about your word, Lord, is from you. We are so thankful. We want to thank you for you, your grace and your mercy towards us in salvation. And we'll, we want to honor you and glorify you only. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.